Happy to see all of you this morning. Glad that you're here and I know you have a Bible with you. Or if you don't, there's one in the pew there nearby. So uh, take a look, if you would, please, at the Gospel of Mark and chapter 3. The Gospel of Mark and chapter 3. We are studying uh, a very interesting passage here in Mark chapter 3 this morning. And uh, we are working our way, of course, through through this book. We will be here for a long time. This is, uh, I think, message number 13, and we're only in chapter 3. So, we'll be working our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark for a number of months. In the desert southwest, in this time of year, all the various species of cacti are blooming, along with a variety of other desert wildflowers, and the cycle of life and death in the animal world continues to roll along. And and in the skies above the desert, there are two distinct species of birds watching it all. There are vultures, and there are hummingbirds. Vultures are looking for things that are dead and decaying. That's what they feed on. That's what they live on. That's what they live for. Something needs to die so they can eat. The hummingbirds that are migrating through are looking for wildflower blossoms, cactus blossoms. And from what I read, they tend to be attracted to reds and purples and other bright colors. That's what they feed on. That's what they live on. That's what they live for. Something alive needs to grow so they can eat. And over the last couple of weeks, we have seen that the Pharisees in Jesus' day were like vultures. Vultures live on what was. They live in the past. They fill themselves with what is dead and gone and decaying. But while vultures live on what was, hummingbirds live on what is. They seek new life. They, they fill themselves with freshness and beauty and life. Each bird finds exactly what it's looking for. We all do. That's why God said in Jeremiah 29, 13, He said, You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. We find what we're looking for. We see what we want to see. We do what we really want to do. We pursue what we really want to pursue. Our values and our priorities guide what we focus on. Vultures and hummingbirds are very different birds with different natures who see and who seek different things in the same desert. And so do we. The Pharisees, we saw last week, they came to the synagogue expecting Jesus to heal somebody so they could accuse him of breaking their Sabbath laws, not actual Old Testament laws, but their Sabbath laws, And when Jesus shows mercy and he heals someone, on that same Sabbath day, the Pharisees begin to conspire murder against him. Jesus heals someone, and they begin a plot to figure out a way to kill him. And in their wickedness, you can't heal someone on the Sabbath, but you can plot to commit murder. They're vultures. And you may remember from two weeks ago that Jesus used two word pictures to explain that what the Pharisees were teaching could not be mixed with what he was teaching. They were into self-righteousness. Jesus preached grace. They were into denying their sin. Jesus preached repentance from sin. 
They were proud of their religiousness. Jesus preached humility. They were into external ceremonies. Jesus preached a transformed heart. They loved the approval and acceptance of man. Jesus offered the approval and acceptance of God. They had rituals. Jesus offered a relationship. Yet you can't respect the Lord and His ways and worship false spirits, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. It's as big a difference as vultures and hummingbirds. We have to come to God His way. We have to worship Him His way. So when the Pharisees begin to plot to see how they can kill Jesus, Jesus withdrew from, from Capernaum and he went down by the Sea of Galilee. And we want to examine these next verses in chapter 3 from three different perspectives. Uh, the attraction of the crowds. Then secondly, the authority over the spirit world. And then thirdly, the appointment of his apostles. So we want to read today Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Luke 3, I'm sorry, Mark 3, verses 7 through 19. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he, uh, those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boanerges, with his sons of thunder. Boanerges is, a, is an Aramaic, Aramaic phrase, translated sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Mark explains the popularity of Jesus by describing all of the places the people are coming from to see him. All over Galilee, where Jesus began his ministry. Then he talks about Judea and Jerusalem, which are 70 or 80 miles south of Galilee. Idumea, which is even further south. Uh, beyond the Jordan is an expression that indicates east of the Jordan River. Tyre and Sidon are northwest of Galilee, and, and they are all places dominated by the Gentiles. So basically, Mark is saying that people are traveling enormous distances in their day, enormous distances, 70, 80, 100 miles, one way, uh, to come and see the Lord Jesus. And they're coming from every direction. Idumea was about 100 miles south of Galilee. Sidon was 50 miles northwest of, of, of Capernaum. The, the popularity of Jesus was unlike anything that had ever happened in Israel. And, and why wouldn't it be? 
Jesus was healing people, and he was healing everybody who, who came to him. He was healing people with leprosy, blind people, paralyzed people, crippled people. It was like the curse of sin on the human body was being pushed back by the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. His healing power was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. He would just heal with a word or a touch. He, he never failed. It was always 100% effective and immediate. Why wouldn't somebody walk 50 to 100 miles to come and see the Lord Jesus Christ? Everyone wanted to touch him, Mark said. And they crowded around him so aggressively that it seemed as though they were going to crush him. So Jesus and his disciples get this boat ready so he could push offshore just a little bit and he could preach to the crowds without getting mobbed. No wonder the Pharisees were beside themselves with anger and frustration. They were losing their grip on the population. Jesus was a threat to their control. He was openly defying their man-made regulations for living, especially on the Sabbath. You know, interestingly, many years later, the Apostle Paul called the, the, the Old Covenant, meaning the Law of Moses, the Apostle Paul called it in uh, the, the ministry of death. He called it a ministry of condemnation. He called the new covenant in the Lord Jesus a ministry of the Spirit and a ministry of righteousness. That passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I had forgotten about that till I was doing some reading this week, came across that again. It's interesting that Paul says the old covenant under Moses, that was like a ministry of death. It was a ministry of condemnation. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a ministry of the Spirit and a ministry of righteousness. So we say again, as we have for the last several weeks, Jesus was not coming to reform Old Testament Judaism. He wasn't coming just to clean it up and give it a new face. He was coming to replace it with himself and to put his law in, in their minds and write it on their hearts just as Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 31. He was coming to put a new heart and a new spirit in them and to take the heart of stone out of them and put in a heart of flesh and put his spirit in them so they would walk in his ways as Ezekiel had prophesied in chapter 36 of Ezekiel. You see, Jesus was not after Reformation. Jesus was after transformation. He was aiming for heart change. Something that would happen inside a person that would change their lives forever. Mercy and forgiveness of sin and grace and peace for the soul and eternity in His presence and, and the final complete fulfillment of Psalm 1611 where, where, the, where the Scripture says, In your presence, meaning the Lord's, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But the Pharisee vultures were circling, conspiring to figure out a way for the Lord Jesus to die. But Jesus continued to prove who he was. Nothing in all of creation was any match for his power. He healed anything, he healed everything, and even when he got near a demon-possessed person, the demons fell down before him and declared who he was. But I want you to look at this, if you would. We kind of read through it just a moment ago. Look at verse 11. The unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him, cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. It's, it's very interesting that Jesus never accepted honor from a demon. 
Each time that Mark or the other gospel writers record an encounter between Jesus and the demon, Jesus always tells the demons to be quiet. He forbids them to speak even when they're telling the truth. They, 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 they call out to him. In fact, the word cry out, we would think of it more as a scream or a shriek. When they, when they, when they, when they just scream, you're the son of God, the demons say. And Jesus says, be quiet. Even when they're telling the truth, he, he, he forbids them to speak. They, they know exactly who Jesus is. And even though he is their, their creator, he refuses to accept any honor from them. Why, we might wonder? Well, the scripture doesn't directly answer that question, but we can offer a few possible reasons. Uh, first one possibly is this, that Jesus was displaying his power over them by commanding them not to speak. Not only would the demons have to go where Jesus sent them, but if he told them to be quiet, they weren't even allowed to speak. He had absolute power over them as, as the creator, and perhaps he was simply displaying that power by, by commanding them to be quiet. A second reason could possibly be this, that people need to believe the words of God, not the testimony of demons. Jesus would never want people to think that these wicked spirits are his allies. And he wants absolutely no support from them whatsoever. We saw a similar thing in the book of Acts, when there was a little demon-possessed girl following Paul and Silas around. And this little demon-possessed girl, as she's following behind them uh, through the street, she's calling out, Listen to these men, they're servants of the Most High God. And that went on for about a day, and finally the scripture says Paul was grieved in his spirit. And he turned around and he cast the demon out of the little girl. Because even the servants of God do not want commendations from demons. The Lord Jesus Christ wanted people to believe the words of God, not the testimony of demons. A third reason perhaps is this. Jesus is, is revealing his identity on his timetable, in his way, and to the people he chooses to reveal himself to. And then another thought perhaps is that we can suggest, and I'm certain of this, that Satan, Satan wants people to seek Jesus because of what he can do for them in the here and now. Rather than trusting him as the Son of God who can free them from the punishment of their sins. And you know, there are many, many people today who are very, very enticed by that. They want a life fixed from God. They want more money. They want a better job. They want improved relationships. They want their kid or their grandkid to shape up. They, they, they want something from God right now, and they think if they act like they're seeking the Lord, then better things will happen to them. And, and some of the most popular modern TV preachers preach that message. And many, many people believe it. If I, if, if I just seek God, I'm seeking God for the here and now, not for eternity. We were just at one of the graduations here just a few weeks ago, and somebody said to me, I really hope it will rain more this summer. Maybe I should start going to church. That's exactly what we're talking about here. You know, if I start going, I said, well, going to church is a good start, but I assure you that it won't make it rain. And we, she, she kind of laughed, and, uh, and uh, I thought, well, I might as well just tell her the truth. I smiled. 
So, <laughs> you know, be great to come to church. Yeah, I'd love to have you any time, but it won't make it rain. It'll rain when God says it's going to rain. But, but so many people in, a, in, in our world today, they figure if they seek God, then things good will happen to me in the here and now. And, and, and that is so deceptive because the Bible does say that God can help you. The Bible does say that God will bless you if you obey Him. It does say that. But it does not say that, that life will be smooth sailing every day and you'll never face any difficulties and everything will be just peaches and cream and roses all of the time. You see, when a person seeks the Lord for self-centered reasons, that is, I seek the Lord because of what I hope God will give me, when a person seeks the Lord for self-centered reasons, then they will ultimately reject the Lord when it doesn't go the way that they think it should. Jesus addresses that issue when he teaches the parable that we call the parable of the sower. That's actually coming up here in Mark in chapter 4. We'll see it in just a few weeks and we'll look at it more in, in, in detail. But Satan would love for people to seek the Lord for what he will do for them right now in the here and now in my life. Rather than, than submit to him as the Son of God who can free them from the punishment of their sin. But Jesus never accepts honor from the demonic world. He accepts no promos from the forces of hell. And when they recognize him, shrieking, you are the son of God, he says, be quiet and be gone. He always rebuked the demons, even when they appeared to be telling the truth. Very interesting. Then in these next few verses, we see one of the four listings of the twelve apostles. Their names are listed four different times in the New Testament. They're listed in Matthew chapter 10. They're listed here in Mark chapter 3. They're listed in Luke chapter 6. And they're listed in Acts chapter 1. And when we think about the 12 apostles, if you have any kind of church background outside of Bible preaching churches, you would typically have been taught to, to elevate them uh, to being almost sinless. And the thought is that they're just kind of super spiritual, man. They're, they're the apostles. They're on, they're on this level no one else could ever reach. And they're just almost, almost beyond sin. And, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. They do become incredible servants of the Lord Jesus. All of them but John were martyred for their faith in Christ. They became dedicated and faithful and committed followers of the Lord Jesus, even unto death. But they did not start out that way. They are not the most noble, uh, the most educated, the most highly skilled, the most gifted, humanly speaking. They are very ordinary, first century Jewish men. And in many ways, they're kind of a strange group. You and I, if we were gathering a, a team of men to spread the message of Christ, we would probably not pick these guys to be on the same team. But note the very, the very plain statement of verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. Jesus picked who he wanted to pick. In Dr. Luke's record of this, he says Jesus went up to the mountain and he prayed all night. 
Then in the morning, he called these 12 men and his representatives. And there would be no reason at all to collect these particular men to live together and work together and minister together, except that it would be for the specific purposes of God. They are perfectly ordinary men in every way. None of them had a history of high levels of theological education or public speaking ability or is known for any unique talent. That They actually were, were, were prone to mistakes. They were prone to misunderstandings. They had bad attitudes. They had lapses of faith. They had arguments among themselves. And Jesus remarked on more than one occasion that they were slow learners. They're actually a lot like us. And then when you think about the fact that in their politics, there were some of them that were polar opposites. Simon, they call him there in, in verse uh, uh, Simon the, the Canaanite, meaning from Cana. There in other passages, he's called Simon Zelotes or Simon the Zealot. He was a, he was a, a group or he was a, a member of this political party, this political group called the Zealots. They were political radicals. They were determined to overthrow the Romans and get them out of Israel. Some of those radicals would carry around little daggers in their cloaks. And if they thought they could get away with it, they would stab an unsuspecting Roman soldier as they walked past. And as we've seen in earlier studies, you remember Matthew was a tax collector. He would have been on the opposite end of the political spectrum. The zealots wanted to kill the Romans... The tax collectors bought a franchise, a tax franchise from the Romans, collected taxes from their fellow Jews, and gave it to the Romans to fund their presence in Israel. In a different time and in a different place, Simon would have been the kind of fellow who would love nothing more than to stab someone like Matthew. So these two would have absolutely nothing in common. And yet the Lord Jesus picked them both. At least four of them were commercial fishermen, as we know. Galilee was, was farming country, so other apostles could have been involved in some area of agriculture. Everyone but Judas Iscariot was from Galilee, so they grew up in the same basic region. They were probably at least, at least distantly acquainted with each other, much like around here. Even if you don't know a person in a, in a personal way, you probably know who they are. They were all very ordinary. They had faults and flaws, just like we do. And they carried on a ministry after Jesus ascended into heaven that totally turned the world upside down. And you know what? Their ministry is still going on today. We are part of their legacy. And those to whom we minister, and, and those in this generation who minister to the next generation, that they are following the theological trail of truth that was blazed by these first 12 men. They were personally selected out of the many disciples that followed Jesus. He identified who they were, and notice they didn't volunteer for the job. Nobody submitted a resume. Jesus chose them for the job. In fact, in John chapter 15, Jesus very plainly told his disciples the night before he was crucified, he said, you did not choose me. He says, I chose you. I picked you, he said, to go out and bear fruit. You didn't pick me, he said, I picked you. And he knew all their faults long before he chose them. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their failures. He even knew that Judas was going to betray him. He chose Judas anyway, and he gave him all the same opportunities that he gave all the others. And I want you to think about this as well. You got, you got 12 ordinary, everyday, average, working class men, and the entire advancement 
of the kingdom of God, from a human perspective, it all depends on them. There's no plan B. There's no second string to come off the bench. There's no backup quarterback if somebody gets hurt. That these men are personally selected by Jesus Christ. They are called to be his apostles, and that word apostle simply means one that is sent as an ambassador. They are taught by Jesus. They are called to be his apostles. They are given, they have been given the indwelling Holy Spirit by the Lord Jesus in John 21 after the resurrection. They're granted spiritual authority similar to Jesus. In fact, look what he says in verse 12. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. He says, these things I want them to do. I want them to be with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I want to teach them. I want to train them. I want them to know the word. I want them to know what I'm all about. I want them to be with me. I want them to be my representatives. And then he said, I want to send them out to preach. I want to send them out to do what I'm doing. I want to multiply myself times 12. I want them to preach what I'm preaching. I want them to carry the message that I'm carrying. And in order to affirm that, he says, I'm going to give them power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. He said, I'm going to grant to them some of the powers that I have. Similar power to what the Lord Jesus Christ has. You will notice as you read through the Gospels that the apostles did have healing power. And they did have power over demonic spirits. But they did not have power over nature as the Lord Jesus Christ did. No apostle could walk out to the wind on the Sea of Galilee and say, Peace be still, and have the wind stop and the waves quit. Never happened. No no, uh, apostle could take five loaves and two fish and and start breaking it off and supernaturally create food for 5,000 people out of one little kid's sack lunch. They, They never had that kind of power over nature. They did have power to perform healings, which they did. They did have power to cast out demonic spirits, which they did. But but that other power over over all of nature and all of the the entire universe, only the Lord Jesus Christ had that power and he maintained it. But he gave the apostles some of the powers that he had to verify their messages. They're going to receive divine revelation from the Holy Spirit. They and their associates are going to write what we call today the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2 says the apostles are the foundation of the church. And that they were average, ordinary men taught by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, committed to their destiny in Christ, and they turned the world upside down. So let me ask you a couple of questions. I'm not quite done yet, but let me start with a couple of these. So what can God do with you? What are you willing for God to do with you? How committed are you to the kingdom of God and to the family of God, the local church? How determined are you to follow the Lord Jesus and to do what he calls you to do? You know, interestingly, in these four listings of the apostles in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, their names are are always organized in the same groups of four, three groups of four names in each listing. The lists vary just a little bit, but the same name begins each group, and they're always in the same of the three subgroups. Group number one is the two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Group number two is Philip, Nathaniel, Bartholomew is a last name, it means the son of Ptolemy. 
And so this Bartholomew here is the one who's listed as Nathaniel in other passages. So group number two is Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew, and Thomas. Group number three is James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, who's also called by a couple of other names, and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. Peter is always listed first in group one. Philip is always listed first in group two. James, the son of Alphaeus, is always listed first in group three. Jesus chose 12 men, and after Judas Iscariot committed suicide, a 12th was selected to take his place. Why did there have to be 12? Because according to Luke 22 and Revelation 21, the 12 apostles are going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in the millennial kingdom. In the New Jerusalem that we refer to often as, as heaven will be like heaven to us. The New Jerusalem coming down from God out of, out of heaven. There are 12 foundations that have the names of the apostles on them. And there are many New Testament students looking through the New Testament uh, through a first century Jewish lens who believe that selecting the 12 uh, was a direct rebuke against the religious establishment of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is basically saying to them, your corrupt system is over. And I am not after reformation, I am after transformation. I have a new set of promises. I have a new covenant. I have a new relationship. I have a new spiritual kingdom, which is going to become the, the millennial kingdom, which is going to eventually become the everlasting kingdom. And this new rabbi who has burst onto the scene is now gathering and creating an entirely new structure of God dealing with man, and he's letting the corrupt religious establishment of his day know that they were done, and a new day was dawning, and he was doing that by selecting his first generation of delegated ambassadors. God used 12 ordinary, flawed, weak, sometimes failing, sometimes foolish men, and he taught them, and he empowered them, and he sent them out. Why does God use those kinds of people? Well, as you and I know, that's all he has to work with. Because we're all flawed, and we're all weak, and we're all sometimes failing and sometimes foolish. And God in His great mercy and His incredible grace, He takes flawed sinners and He teaches them, He empowers them, and He uses them to accomplish His will for the cause of Christ and His kingdom. And we are still here today because of the faithfulness and the commitment of 12 flawed men who obeyed the calling of the Lord Jesus and followed Him even unto death. I want to close our thoughts this morning with two brief passages of Scripture. One you may be familiar with. We have looked at it several times over the years. The second one is less familiar, but you need to be familiar with it, so we'll close with that. But first of all, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Some of you will recognize this passage. We have read it many times. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want you to think about this passage from the standpoint of the apostles, the flawed apostles, the weak apostles, the apostles who argued among themselves over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, the apostles who when Jesus told them three or four different times, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified, they kind of look at him and blink their eyes and it goes right past them. The apostles who never seem to be quite plugged into what's going on. 
The same apostles who when Jesus said at the, at, at the night of the Last Supper in what we call the upper room discourse there in, in John chapter 14, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. And you know where I'm going and you know the way. And Philip looks at him and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I and the way, the truth, and the life. No one can follow. No one can come to the Father except through me. I'm sorry, Thomas asked him that. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, have you been with me so long? And you still don't get it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Those apostles, after three years of being with Jesus... And Philip says to him, Lord, just, just you know, show, show us who, who the Father is. And Thomas says, Lord, 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 we don't, we don't know where you're going. How can we, how can we know the way? We, we don't even know where you're going. And I'm sure, I'm not trying to put human thoughts in the Lord Jesus, but I, I mean, if it were me, you'd go, oh, come on, come on, guys, three years. Now it's been three years. Plug in, man. Those apostles... Yet empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ takes them and does incredible things with them. Look at this passage, 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 26 is where we're starting to read. For you see your calling, brethren. He's talking about people being called to come to Christ. We think of it from the standpoint of the, of the apostles as well. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us, Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Paul says, oh, I didn't pick you. He says, Jesus Christ didn't, didn't, didn't pick us to, to serve him, to follow him, to, to believe in him. Because we were so fantastic, he thought we'd make a good addition to the team. No, he said, I chose the foolish things, the weak things, the people who stumble, the people who struggle, the people who seem to be nothing, to put to shame the people who, who, think, they're, who think they're really something, because I don't want any flesh glorying in my presence. But look what he says of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is so great. You could preach about three messages just on verse 30 and 31. I won't today, of course. But he says, notice, of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us, and look at the four things he became, wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Jesus Christ is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. We are complete in him. So God takes flawed sinners like us, and he transforms them into useful servants so that he can get the glory and so we can understand his grace. And in verse 31, the Apostle Paul, he's actually quoting 
Jeremiah 9.24, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I want to show you that passage that Paul's quoting. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 9, and we'll wind up with this. Jeremiah chapter 9. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. So if you find Isaiah, then you find Ezekiel, Jeremiah will be in the middle of that. Jeremiah chapter 9. This is the passage that the Apostle Paul is quoting there in 1 Corinthians 1. Fascinating chapter. We're just going to begin to read in verse 23. Going to read just two verses, 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Look what he says. That Thus says the Lord. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Wow, what a passage. You want to brag about something? Brag that you know Jesus Christ. Brag that you understand that God, he said, he said, you want to glory in something, he said, glory that you understand and know me, and you know who I am. I exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Those are the things that I delight in. Don't go around rejoicing that, you, that, you, that you're wise, that you're educated, that you're powerful, that you're wealthy. He, he says, you glory in knowing who I am. And that I exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. You see, if God can take 12 ordinary, average people, and through their relationship with Jesus Christ, turn them into useful servants for God, what can God do with you? What are you willing for God to do with you? How committed are you to the kingdom of God and the family of God? How determined are you to follow the Lord Jesus and to do what he calls you to do? If you are determined and you are committed, there's no limit to what God can do with your life. Let's pray. Lord, we know the devil loves to afflict us with these thoughts of how we're incapable of this and incapable of that and not made for this and not made for that and not gifted here and not gifted there. Lord, may we be encouraged and challenged by the lives of the apostles, average, ordinary, working class men who just submitted to Jesus Christ, gave their all to him. And look at the remarkable things you did with their lives. They all died for you. And we are all here today because of the message they preached that was passed on from generation to generation to generation for the last 2,000 years. Thank you, Father, for your grace in our lives. Pray that we will be more and more dedicated to you. May we glory in understanding and knowing you, knowing who you are, knowing what you do. And Lord, may you use us in your service as you see fit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.